All right, good morning. We're on. It's uh, great to see you all. Great to be continuing in our Bible study. Great to be here at Third Avenue. Uh, great to have a new school year getting underway and uh, lots of folks uh, returning. We are glad to have back among us and uh, many, many new faces and uh, others who've come to join with us. We are continuing in this class and our verse-by-verse -verse study of Leviticus, and we find ourselves this morning of Leviticus 23. We just remind ourselves that that means there are just a few chapters remaining, and thus we will have spent a good deal of time in the book of Leviticus where many Christians never go, and I think we've already seen uh, just how important Leviticus is, not only in the flow of biblical history, not only in the Pentateuch, but uh, in the scope of Christian theology, and in particular, understanding the New Testament and uh, ultimately understanding the work of Christ. But let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you've allowed us to be together on this, this beautiful Lord's Day. You've allowed us to be in this place. You've allowed us to be with these believers and those who've gathered with us for the study of your word. Father, most importantly, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you for the fact that you love us enough to have spoken to us in your word and that we honor Christ by the study of your word. We seek to honor Christ by our study of the book of Leviticus as we understand your instructions to Israel and glean from them what we should know for our faithfulness to Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, Leviticus is such an incredible book because most people, when they think of it, think of it merely as, uh, if they think of it at all, frankly, they think of it as uh, instructions to the Levitical priesthood. And it is, it is. But in the instructions to the Levitical priesthood, one of the first things we see is that there is this incredibly full and absolutely necessary presentation of the background of sacrifice, of the, of the function of the law, of the role of the priesthood, and of the continuals. We've noticed perhaps more than anything else that the meticulous and continuous system of sacrifice and of observance that is commanded to Israel even as it is wandering in the wilderness with the Levitical priesthood given these instructions. Even with the tabernacle before there will be a temple. Now, one of the things we've often noticed is that it would take a monomaniacal commitment on the part of a people to be faithful to this law. One of the things we have noted is that by the time you have completed a sacrifice, and this is true most importantly, of course, for the priesthood, but as we've seen, it's actually true for the entire nation of Israel. Once you have completed a sacrifice, another one is coming quite quickly. Another one will be necessary quite quickly. Once one observance is completed in absolute accordance with the law, another one is coming quite quickly. What we're going to be looking at in, in Leviticus 23 are the appointed feast or festal observances of, of Israel. And the first thing I think you will note is that there are so many of them. Let's, uh, let's look together at the text, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, 
These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Let's stop there for just a moment. Again, the Lord is speaking to Moses. And so, once again, we see the role of a mediator. In this case, the mediator of God's word. And uh, Moses is most commonly, uh, in the Pentateuch, the mediator of God's word. He fulfills that function. God does not speak directly to Israel. God speaks to Moses. Moses is told what to say to Israel. So, this is Moses functioning in just this way. And given the precise words, once again, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. I went to high school in uh, South Florida. Mary and I both did. And uh, for both of us, but especially for me, uh, it, was, uh, it was an immersive experience in cultures I did not know especially for me, and that Mary went to a private school, I went to a public school, and especially for me, Mary had actually, you know, spent much of her time in Michigan. I was just pure Florida. And I was surrounded by people from exotic places like New Jersey <laughs> and New York in high school. And uh, there was a synagogue in Lakeland where I had been born, but I knew nothing of it other than that was the Jewish people. The Old Testament was their, their scripture. I, you know, just a little boy, that Baptist world, that's all I knew. And I end up with Jewish students uh, in, in, in the class with me. One of them, the son of a rabbi. So this sounds like a bad joke, but in one particular study group, it was a Roman Catholic kid who was pre-tridentary, I mean, absolutely Council of Trent, conservative Roman Catholic family, the rabbi's kid, and me, the son of a Baptist deacon. And so, it, like I set up for a joke, and it, it, but, but I learned a great deal. One of the things I learned is that Baptists are religiously thin when it comes to food culture. Now, we manage not to be so thin when it comes to food, but just food culture. <laughs> Food culture, we're kind of thin on. And so, you know, grading that, the old, uh, you know, some of you may know that name. Frankly, very few of you probably. He was quite common as a speaker in Baptist circles, you know, 40 years ago. He used to talk about the sacrament of, uh, you know, dinner on the grounds. You guys are also looking at me strange. Uh, because that's an archaic term. Uh, Yankees have taken this over now with the potluck supper. But in the South, it was called dinner on the grounds because you generally did it outdoors under the oak trees. And, you know, everybody brought their best dish. I should say every, every cook brought her best dish. And, and I thought that was like the greatest thing ever when I was growing up in church. But, but that was rare. And uh, it wasn't always connected to any kind of religious calendar. It was just we're going to have dinner on the grounds on Sunday, etc. It also was not for Baptist therapy. I discovered that for my friends, food was religiously important in different ways, and it was therapy. Just a few times, I was in the rabbi's house, which again, just fascinating. Adolescent Baptist, Southern Baptist, in the house of rabbi. I can tell much more about that. I can just say he was a reformed rabbi, which meant he didn't believe in God, as I discovered. So we had some interesting discussions. I asked him if he believed in in historical Noah, and he told me he didn't believe in God. Blew every, blew every fuse 15-year-old Southern Baptist had. But nonetheless, I caught on to Jewish culture. You know the Yiddish word siris, which means stress. 
What do you do when there's stress? Ron was the kid. His mother would always say, I'll make soup. Stress, soup. Nothing that formal in my Baptist world. Catholics the same way. Giant meals all the time for this reason or for that reason. Somebody's anniversary of a baptism. Somebody's this or that. Very complex calendar. I'd have a hard time keeping up with it. That's why one of the reasons priests are celibate, I think, just so they can keep up with the calendar. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, you know, Baptists, it just seemed evangelical. You know, we have a very spare festal calendar. And as a matter of fact, uh, in the United States, most evangelicals have a bipolar calendar. That's it. Christmas and Easter. Christmas and Easter. Now, there are other things that we observe, and, and certainly here at 3rd, there, there are other parts of the Christian calendar to which we give attention. But in the, in the popular imagination of American evangelicalism, it's just bipolar now. Christmas, Easter, Christmas, Easter. And um, there, there's just nothing like the culture that you see reflected here in Leviticus. One of the most interesting things we see here in this very first verse is that the Lord says to, to Moses to say to Israel, these are my appointed feasts. Israel can have other feasts, but these are the feasts of the Lord's appointment. And that, that phrase is repeated over and over again within this text. And of course, it's duplicated even in the opening verse, in the first two verses, the introduction here. What many Christians miss is that what follows is the Sabbath. Look at verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So wherever the Israel will be, and remember they're not yet in the land of promise, and that's actually well out into the future. Wherever they are, they are the Sabbath people. Now it's, it's really difficult for us, no matter how intentional, no matter how self-conscious we are as evangelical Christians to understand the role of the Sabbath in Judaism, and in particular here in Leviticus, as reflected throughout the, uh, the, the times of the Bible. And, and, and this is very clear as the necessary background, sometimes the foreground to the New Testament. The, the Sabbath is Israel's timepiece, period. That's it. That's it. The, 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 the Sabbath is absolutely essential, so much so that as we shall see, these festivals are themselves a Sabbath form, and they are scheduled and marked by a Sabbatarian pattern, and most importantly, the pattern of seven. So this begins with the festival. Number one, every Sabbath in one sense is, is the, the, the calendar set. It, 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 it is the day. It is the Lord's. It is the Lord's. He claims it for himself. He will refer to it as my Sabbath. It belongs to me. I give you six days. This day is mine. Six days you shall work, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. So there are two different parts there that are, again, are given to the Sabbath. There's a, there's a presence and, a, and, and an absence. There's an absence of work, but a presence of the holy convocation. Now, that's something, again, that many people miss, that a lot of Christians miss. And this is where the Levitical instruction concerning the Sabbath adds necessary knowledge 
to what we find in Exodus and in the Ten Commandments and the, the institution of the Sabbath. Because here we are told that the Sabbath is a holy convocation. So let's just back up. What is a convocation? It, it is a coming together. So this is not just an individual observance. I mean, almost by definition, a feast isn't an individual thing. Although if it could be, modern Americans would try it. It's a, it's a gathering. And uh, it begins with the Sabbath. A Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. And so it, it is located, most importantly, in the home as the family gathers together. Then beginning in four, verse 4, we have the, the feast themselves. First, the Passover. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. So you don't get to schedule them. You don't get to order them. The Lord says, I'm going to order them. I'm going to schedule them. And the specificity is remarkable. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now again, seven, 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 on the seventh day. This reminds us that the calendar of Israel does not begin in winter, but rather in spring. So Passover turns out to be the first, and that's why the Jewish year system, even in, it's, it's, it's not continuous as much as some Jewish tradition would claim, but nonetheless, it, it's expressive of uh, the traditional Jewish calendar, why the Jewish New Year is different and all the rest. Uh, but here you, you see the Passover, and of course this goes right back to Israel's experience in fleeing from Pharaoh in Egypt, and uh, with the blood on the, the doorpost and the saving of the first sons as the curse had come when the first son of the family, the oldest son, would die as the angel of death passed by. The Passover, you would think, would be the most dramatic even as it begins, and the Lord gives the instructions for the Passover, not the detailed issues of the, of the feast, but, uh, but rather of the uh, timing of the observance. Israel is fully expected to understand everything here from Exodus chapter 12. There's the background to the first Passover, and it is and always has been a reenactment. And, uh, and so that, that reenactment is just a reminder of the election of the firstborns of Israel to life by means of the covenant sign of the blood on the doorpost whereby they live when the first sons of Egypt or the first sons of any there uh, in Egypt without blood on the doorpost would and did die. And thus there's tremendous solemnity, but there is no festival there's no observance that more clearly marks out Israel as Israel as God's covenant people than the Passover. And the instructions are given here. This is where the, the festivals begin. And then immediately following is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, Christians often think of the Passover and the religious observances of the time as one. Arguably, it's two. Uh, but the feast itself is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Notice again, seven. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. That's it. For seven days. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. 
You shall not do any ordinary work. Again, present a food offering to the Lord for how long? Seven days. On what day is another holy convocation? The seventh. You shall not do any ordinary work. So if you add all this up, by the way, this is an enormous number of days uh, in these festivals that have to have Israel's paramount attention. And uh, it's, it's interesting to, just to think about this for a few moments. There's nothing like this in evangelical experience, nothing like this. There, there is something like this in historic Christian experience, but very early in especially medieval Christianity, this got transferred to the priests and uh, even in its own way to the, the holy orders, monastic orders and orders of nuns, etc., the, uh, the important thing is to understand that Catholicism has a very thick calendar, much like this, that also requires an enormous amount of uh, time and attention, but it was, uh, it was kind of, in medieval Christianity, booted up to the priesthood and uh, people who do these things on behalf of the church. And, and so th this would be something Christians come to. This is not something the children of Israel came to. It is something they did because of who they were. So two things we see here. Number one, the, I just go back because to me it's simply one of the most amazing, shocking issues of Leviticus as a, indicative of the life of Israel and the obedience of Israel. Israel is called to a sacrificial system, a system of sacrificial observance, which would have required a good deal of attention every single day. Even if it's just anticipating a sacrifice, preparing a sacrifice, purchasing a sacrifice, feeding a sacrifice, it's enormous. And these festivals, they're going to take an enormous amount of time. More than I think we Americans can, can hardly even imagine. You know, we get together for Christmas and then you disperse, you get together and you disperse. Israel, very different. And furthermore, this is an entire community the entire nation is experiencing this together next the first the feast of the first fruits and the lord spoke to moses in verse 9 saying speak to the people of israel and say to them the formula that's all throughout the pentateuch when you come into the land that i give you and reap its harvest you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest and he shall wave the sheaf before the lord so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall neither, you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you brought the offering of your Lord. It is a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So this is a permanent feast, one of God's appointed festal occasions for Israel. And notice again, all the preparation required for it. Notice the stoppage basically of everything else as this is taking place. It is a wave offering earlier in Leviticus. We saw a wave offering. It's, and thus it's a it's a physical, material demonstration. There's the waving before the altar. And it's, it's, it's not to get God's attention. It's, uh, it's to indicate God's possession. Uh, this belongs to the Lord. 
It is uh, by, by God's grace given to us, the first fruits of the harvest, the harvest itself, all the gift of the Lord. And uh, you see the, the observance. The Feast of Weeks, beginning in verse 15, you shall count seven, by now you know what the number is going to be, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. So this is seven Sabbaths after that Sabbath. Seven Sabbaths after the Sabbath, which is the seventh day. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And again, that, that's 49 plus one. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. And you shall bring from your dwelling places. So this comes from the people, from, from the homes. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So this is in contrast to the unleavened. This is leavened and brought to the Lord as first fruits. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish. How many lambs? Seven. And one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Interesting, just as, as you look to this, uh, other than the Feast of Booth, this is the most extensive passage. So it may be that this was less familiar to, to Israel. Uh, nonetheless, it's really interesting that as you look at some of these feasts, that we've seen something like this before in some of Israel's experience in the narrative chapters, but much of this has, has not been seen. And, and so here the, the Lord is speaking about this, this uh, Feast of Weeks, lots of sevens here. And then specifically, you'll notice that it's not just a, it's not just a feast, and, and that's why the word feast is a little bit misleading here. And uh, so it, they're, they're festal. So this is, a, this, this, this is, by the time you get to English at a certain point, it'll be festival. Uh, but uh, but festal means it is a it is a gathering. It's a it's a centering point. It is a, it's, it's it's the big issue on the calendar. It is uh, it is a common experience. It is a convocation. But you'll notice that atonement is lurking here all the time. The the necessity of holding back God's wrath from sin against the people. And, and so here, even as you're looking at the animals to be sacrificed. Seven lambs a year old without blemish, in addition to the bread, as a burnt offering. One male goat, two male lambs a year old, a sacrifice of a peace offering. So you have a wave offering, you have a, uh, a sin offering, and you have a peace offering. We've seen all those in complexity throughout Leviticus. And so now they're all coming together, which makes it unusual. So it's one thing that seems to mark a festal occasion is that multiple sacrifices are involved in at least some of these 
And there's something, again, many Christians often miss. And you'll notice the motions. Again, you have, you have the wave offering demonstrated in verse 20. And uh, in verse 21, you, you shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. So there are also things that will be said as, uh, as Israel gathers together. The, uh, the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Trumpets, verse 23, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh, what number? Seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall, you shall, you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Now, this is the shortest. Now, I want to know more about it. So this is a day of solemn rest, and you'll notice the schedule here. It'd be kind of in the middle of the calendar, and it's a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets. There's a holy convocation. You don't do an ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. It's just, it's very interesting because just before in the Feast of Weeks, we had such incredible detail, seven of these, one of these, two of these, exactly here, the wave offering in just this way, and yet here... In this particular feast, we just have the summary, you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And, and as we saw, the food offering is the most basic of the sacrifices or of the offering. So maybe one of the reasons why we, we don't hear much about that festival. But then, the Day of Atonement. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of Sabbath rest, Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. In uh, English, the, uh, the translation here that comes out, afflict, it, it's, it's, uh, it seems odd. We don't often speak of afflicting ourselves. We understand the word affliction, but it generally is something imposed upon us. That's actually the best way to think about what we should see here. This is, you are imposing this upon yourself. This is, this is Israel, by God's command, imposing themselves in this way, uh, afflicting themselves in their obedience to all that the Lord has commanded. Three times it, it shows up in this relatively brief passage. Um, the Day of Atonement, of course, becomes the great background in so many ways to our understanding of the atonement accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we do remind ourselves this is an annual day in the experience of Israel, hearkening back to Israel's experience as the elect nation. But uh, this is the day of atonement. I guess if I, uh, honestly, I just have to say I'm surprised there's not a lot more here. Uh, just given the centrality of atonement and, and the theology of Israel, given the the importance of this day, given the context here and the Levitical instructions, I, I, I think it's 
I think it's fair, at least in my analysis, I would have, I would have expected more. I would have expected perhaps even a lot more. There's more I want to know. I, I want to know a great deal more about this Day of Atonement, exactly, exactly how this works. But in order to get there, we actually have to put a lot of biblical text together. And uh, that's a fun study, very productive, encouraging studying the gospel in and of itself. But as you follow the canonical shape of the, of the Day of Atonement, uh, a, a part of, I think, what strikes me is that there appears to be, just to speak honestly and fairly, there appears to be a fairly limited horizon in Israel's theological imagination of a day of atonement. Because this is an annual day of atonement. I, I, you can see this, by the way, in some of the preaching of the early church fathers. And you can, you can see it in the, in the New Testament itself. You can see it in, in the beginning chapters of the book of Acts. It's in the background, of course, to the letters of Paul. It's, uh, it's in the background to, to what we hear, especially from Jesus, in, uh, at least in what I detect in John and in Matthew. Um, Israel saw itself as God's elect nation, moving towards a certain destiny of geographical kingdom and uh, a witness to the nations through the, uh, their obedience to God and observance of these very statutes and observances. And they had an eschatological picture of the nations coming to know Yahweh through Israel's obedience, its chosen status, its, its, its role among the nations. And, and of course, central to this is part of the way Israel reminded itself and obeyed the Lord who had made Israel its covenant nation was by obedience to these very commands. And there was a testimony to the other nations in Israel's obedience to these festivals and these commands. But there was an annual repetition, and this is just, this is just continuing a part of the, the shock of Christianity, the shock of the gospel, the shock of the preaching of Jesus, this, especially you can see this in the gospel of John, the shock of Jesus as the Lamb of God, is that there is a day of atonement. Not just a day of atonement this year. And as you know, we are told this means not with the blood of oxen, lambs, but rather with the blood shed by the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is indispensable to our understanding of how all of this comes together. And this is where we as Christians have to both rejoice in and resist just a bit the, uh, the temptation to read this and I wrote a commentary on Hebrews and Leviticus is so much a part of the background of that. It, there's an instinct in us, and it's not wrong that we, we're, we're continually kind of getting at Leviticus, say, through Hebrews. But it's a good discipline for us to feel the shock of the fact that we're not talking about every year a day of atonement, which is necessary just to hold back the wrath of God. We're, we're here as Christians because of a day of atonement when salvation was 
perfectly accomplished, the forgiveness of sins eternally purchased in full. Oh, just one last note about this. Again, the Sabbath construction. It even ends from evening to evening. Shall keep your Sabbath. Then the Feast of Booths. This comes up again and again in Scripture. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, On the 15th day of the seventh, the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the, the, the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. So this is not just a a feast. This is not just a convocation. Every day a food offering. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation. For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you shall give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered, in the produce, you've gathered the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. The Feast of booths, you know, you look at this and you say, man, so how exactly does this work? There's a, think of this as like a tent, you know, basically. And the family leaves their dwelling, all of Israel, to go back and to be in a booth for a period of eight days, uh, just to remember, we don't actually own these homes. <laughs> we don't actually, we don't actually have a national history that explains how we got from here to there, except the Lord brought us out of Egypt and through the wilderness, and we dwelled in tents. And once a year, for this period of days, we're going to dwell in tents again. You look at all this and you say, okay, we know the the most basic pattern of Scripture as Christians is promise and fulfillment. We know that. It's instinctive to us. And so we look at this and we say, that's all promise. By the way, it doesn't feel all like promise. It's, it's, a lot of this, like so much of the law, is just it feels like a massive imposition, a just giant weight put upon Israel. But it's more than that. It's just a constant reminder, of course, by grace. Israel exists by God's grace alone. Is by is God's elect nation by grace alone, and so all these observances are just a reminder of the reality of that grace and that. The one true and living God is Israel's God and is the sole sufficient explanation for why Israel exists, not just 
in its history, but now, whether they're in the booths in the wilderness or they're in a booth in the land of promise, centuries thereafter. But you look at all of this and you say, you know, what, what, is, what is promise and fulfillment in all of this? The early church had to struggle with some of this. I mean, this is, first of all, the question is, to, is Christianity a continuation of Judaism uh, in the sense that new converts to Christianity who are Gentiles must become Jewish first? There's not a lot in the New Testament about festivals in the same sense that we understand our festivals. And the early church had to kind of think this through. And, and, and again, you can look at a liturgical calendar like the Catholic calendar or the Orthodox calendar of churches in the East, and they're very thick with feasts and festivals and, and all the rest. And uh, this became very much an issue in the Reformation in the 16th century with the magisterial reformers trying to figure out exactly what you do. And you won't be surprised that Luther said, let's keep most of them. Let's keep most of them. The people understand them, that these would be the Christian festivals, which in some ways are an overlay of some of the festivals of, of Israel. Uh, the Genevan Reformation, the, uh, the re Reformed tradition, uh, far less inclined to, uh, to take on these uh, festal occasions. Uh, Calvin very clearly said what uh, the institution that remains is the, is the Lord's day. Of course, we could get into all kinds of Sabbath issues here, but the, the, the seven-day pattern is the most important continuing pattern for the church. And uh, Geneva, as a matter of fact, you know, regulated uh, the Sunday as the Christian Sabbath in ways that went far beyond what uh, the Catholic uh, princes had, had largely been doing. Gordon Linnum points out that uh, Christianity basically, as experienced by most Christians worldwide, focuses, of course, on two basic uh, festival events, neither of which come with any of the specificity or the obligation that, that Israel is assigned here. And so, obviously, Chris, uh, Christmas and uh, Easter. And uh, I don't particularly like the word Easter, it's just, uh, just given its background, I kind of sound Greek Orthodox, I say, when I say the festival of the resurrection. But incarnation, the birth of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ from the dead become the two you know, focal things. And yet, and yet, um, Protestant Christianity has largely deconvoked them or unconvoked them. These, you recall, these are repeated as the institutions of the appointed festivals of God. This is a holy convocation. So for Israel, the most important thing was for these festivals, the fact that it wasn't just a private observance, it wasn't just a family observance. Back and forth, as we've seen in this text, there's a reference to what all of Israel must do basically in the homes and then what Israel does together. We've kind of unconvoked or deconvoked uh, much of this. And, uh, you know, if Christmas falls on a Sunday, then churches have Sunday services. A lot of churches... Uh, have a Christmas Eve service, uh, that was considered by the Puritans to be, well, first of all, they didn't like Christmas, um, but the idea that you gather for a Christmas Eve service, that is just, that's just Protestants meeting without a mass, and everybody's still thinking mass. Uh, I am old enough that in my home church, when we held a first Christmas Eve service, it was a theological controversy. 
because it looked Catholic. Uh, free church evangelicals are very allergic to anything that looks like this. First of all, because we, we do have that basic instinct of promise and fulfillment in which all of this is fulfilled in Christ. All of it. You know, how much of this did Christ fulfill? Some of it? Most of it? No, actually, the entire understanding of promise and fulfillment is that if Christ has not fulfilled all of this, then we're doomed. But Christ has fulfilled all of this. By the way, even right here in Louisville, Kentucky, there is a reminder to us, and uh, Mary and I were in conversation with a new student, and uh, the, uh, the, the student, the family came with a last name. They said something like, you know, you, you probably never heard that name before. And we, well, we, ha- we heard it before because of very important developments uh, in the history here. Uh, so Judaizing cults have arisen within Christianity repeatedly, you know, and, and even recently, you know, cults in which you have the, uh, the claim that the Christian church is unfaithful because we are not continuing these particular uh, ordinances and commands given to Israel. And so you see in Judaizing cults and sects, you see either a kind of an attempted partial return to this kind of practice or at least an attempted rather full return to this kind of practice. And uh, I, I mentioned the issue here in Louisville because the right across the river was a, uh, there, there was a pretty well-known Judaizing cult and even the time I was a seminary student, which was, uh, you know, 180 years ago, uh, it was still very much a, an issue of conversation here in town. And, and frankly, there was a, there, there was a cult that, uh, uh, where you had someone claim to be basically the new Christ. And uh, I will simply tantalize you by saying at some point, if you guys would like... Uh, We'll take a field trip and go over and find the great monument in southern Indiana to the dispensations in which it is not Jesus Christ who is at the top of this giant granite marker. It is a, it's the human prophet, self-declared prophet. I'll simply tell you that Jerry Vines, who was then president of the SBC, had an interest in it. He and I have been preaching at an event. We're at my house at like 11 o'clock at night. He's writing a book. He is asking about it. And I said, let's go see it. I'll just say it turned out not to be a good idea for the president of the Southern Seminary and the president of the Southern Baptist Convention to be in a cemetery in Indiana at midnight. <laughs> turned out the police uh, found, that, found that odd. Uh, but <laughs> And as I found myself explaining it, it seemed increasingly odd to me <laughs> as well. <laughs> but uh, these, uh, these Judaizing tendencies are there. And so we have to look at this and, and just remember that promise and fulfillment isn't a way of looking at this. We, we really only have limited options in looking at a text like this. And, and the first is just kind of the biblical uh, or the anthropological argument, the uh, the, 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 the religionis geschichte argument, the, 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 as we're just looking at religion, we're just, you know, as a secular viewpoint, you look at this and you go, well, that's just uh, the cultus of Israel and its pre-national form, and isn't that interesting? Or, or you can look at this and you can say, Israel 
as God's elect nation, had such a privileged position that God loved Israel so much and saw Israel as his son to the extent that he ordered the life of that nation in such meticulous ways, not because he was imposing upon them a burden, but because he was manifesting to them a privilege. And all the other nations could just look at that and go, we have none of that. And that's part of the role of Israel among the nations was just to have that kind of witness, which was God's purpose. And like I said, we have limited options. Or, or we can look at that and say, that's promise. And fulfillment is not just national Israel. Fulfillment is ultimately the kingdom of Christ. And, and we're here today, and everything we do is in light of the fact that we do not look to a passage like this and say, isn't that interesting about ancient Israel? It is interesting. We look at that and say, isn't that important for our understanding of what Christ has accomplished for us? And both in continuity and in discontinuity, both defined by Scripture, we understand what it means to be the church much more faithfully and accurately than if we did not know this. Evidently, all this is important not just for Israel then, but for us now. And uh, it's not because we keep these feasts. It's because we're saved by the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in every word of Scripture. I thank you for this text from Leviticus, this chapter. And Father, as we are now kind of reaching the end of Leviticus, we just uh, pray that your Holy Spirit would apply your word to our hearts in such a way as to make us love your scripture more, love you more, see Christ more faithfully, and love him more. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.